Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Endeavor podcast and video show. Uh, I am Jason Breitkopf, the host of the, this series of episodes, and with me once again is Christy Davin. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Great. I am so glad you're here again because both as an expert in um, communications, uh, whether it's personal or corporate, and as a parent, I think this is a topic that is going to be really uh interesting for you and and so we can kind of talk it out both from the educator perspective and from the parent uh, perspective as well. Excellent. So what we're going to be talking about today is a student's personal testing calendar. So what we mean by that is the question comes up, when should I take my tests, whether it's SAT or ACT? Uh, when should I do other things, APs, subject tests, uh, you know, get my applications in? When do I do that? And one of the things that we here with Endeavor recommend is creating a personal testing calendar. So there will be an article on the blog about that and and once I write it, I'm going to put the link in the show notes so you can access that as well. Uh, And it may not be, it might be Dr. Wanda Montanez who's been a frequent guest on the show and is a real expert in college counseling. And so it might be uh, me writing the article or it might be Wanda or it might be both of us working together. But as soon as we get that, we'll put that in the show notes. So even if you've listened to the episode and it's not there, check back in because we can update the show notes after the episode's post, which is so exciting. I love that. You might notice that if you've been listening to the podcast or watching the video show and you've been seeing the links pop up afterwards. So, Christy, uh, I know you have two sons who are high school I do, students. I do. Uh, one of whom is a senior. Uh, was the did you have a personal testing calendar for your older son? No, we didn't really need that. He um, he tested well, and he didn't have APs or subject tests. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to take both SAT and ACT, so he took the SAT once and was done. I don't think okay. it'll be the same for my other son. He's a freshman right now. Right. I right. think that we may, um, he's pursuing at least one AP course, mm-hmm. so we will have Already as a freshman? Uh, it's, it's something that we talked to his teacher about. He says he's gifted in computer science, so, and she actually is qualified to teach the AP computer science course. So we're hoping, we've already sort of gotten it aligned that he is um, in taking AP, excuse me, he's taking regular computer science now. Mm-hmm. Next year he will take honors. And then junior year, he will take AP. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about is how to plan ahead. So there's basically two, and it's glad that we're talking about your two different sons because they both kind of represent different types of students in this process. So let's talk about the the student who is not necessarily the most motivated student, the student who is going to go to college but isn't looking to... uh, achieve admissions to the most prestigious school, who, who doesn't care about APs, who doesn't care about testing, who isn't that interested in education for education's sake, just wants to get out in the world and do their thing. Whatever that job is, whatever that career path is, whatever that subject is that they want to pursue. So for me, the personal testing calendar for that type of student, which is probably the majority of students, is most students take the SAT for the first time in March of their junior year. When, and if we're talking about an ACT student, that's probably April, because that's when the ACT date is. Mm-hmm. So most students will start that process their junior year. Whether they take a prep class or not, they'll do that spring testing. Now your son, you said, only took the test one time. But a lot of students, even if they're not super motivated to get into a really prestigious school, they just want to go to college so they can start their life. Uh, they're not is interested in the in the fancy college experience. Uh, they'll, many students take the test 
a second time and usually in the fall of their senior year, which lines up with when they're starting their application process. But does this also, um, you know, you said that the um, students who may be less motivated to get into, maybe they're not applying to a bunch of colleges, mm -hmm. but it may also, and correct me if I'm wrong, apply to students who are very motivated to get into college, but testing may not be their forte, so they're not necessarily going to put a lot of time and effort into the standardized tests and may actually be motivated in other areas like um, supplemental essays or the resume with all of the... I'm, I'm just trying to... And, right. And if, you, and if you want, we can edit this out. But the less motivated student, I'm not sure that... Um, some students may say, hey, that's not me, but it might still apply that they're only going to take the SATs. Well, no, I'm going to roll those students who are highly motivated, but not necessarily uh, they're going to deal with testing as much, in with the highly motivated students who are involved in testing a lot. Okay. So I do want to keep this. I don't want to edit this out because that's a fair point. What if a student wants to go to film school or uh, acting school or art school? And so they're not going to be taking a lot of SATs and ACTs. And they're a highly accomplished artist already in high school. They're sending their art out to festivals. My son going to Berkeley College of Music. Right. That would still in some ways be a highly motivated student. If they know that I'm going to be an artist, I'm going to be a musician, I'm going to be a, a, an actor or director or filmmaker, um, but their path doesn't require a lot of testing, they still want to think about the testing calendar in a more similar way to the highly academic students. High achieving doesn't always necessarily mean academic, in my opinion. Although that is sometimes a stereotype, and I understand why you were responding to that. Because when I think of a student who's not highly motivated, it's a student who's not necessarily, I'm not talking about, like, this person isn't a bad person. This student is not a bad student, even, necessarily. They're just, you know, they're, they're the person who wants to just, you know, get out and get a job, start their life, make some money. They're, they're not as interested in school. They're interested in doing their thing. They may be motivated by other things beyond school. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're a highly motivated person maybe, but they're not a highly motivated student. Okay, I get you. So that's where I'm approaching this from. Okay. So thank you for pushing back on that so that I had to clarify. I was just thinking as a mom, what I would have heard is, what did you just call my kid? Right. You called him less than motivated because he's just taking the SAT once? Right, but motivated, motivated is, is, is not about personality or character. It's about Am I interested in this? What and not, them? Right, and, and not every student is interested by academics or school. Fair I am. I love school. If I had the money and the wherewithal and the time, I would go back to school right this second. Mm. I'd get more degrees. Isn't that ironic that the young people have the opportunity to just learn and it's the older people who want to? Well, I mean, true, that's true for me, but it's not necessarily all older people. It's true for me too. Uh, yeah, I mean, you and I seem to have a lot of that in common. A, a lot of, you know, folks I've met my age or older are just, you know, they did school back in the day and they're done and, and they begrudgingly study something if they have an exam coming up for, you know, I work with adults who were electricians and had to take the master electrician test and it's like, oh my God, I thought I left this behind, gleefully, I and can, they I didn't want put, to do it. I can put aside the exams and the stress of that sort of thing. I love the intrinsic value of the learning. Right. I and not everybody's interested in that. need the structure of the exams and the right. due dates and all of that. But. Right, but not everybody's interested in that. And, and I can understand that. I'm not, I don't want, because we are educators, sometimes people think that we're going to look down on people who don't love education. And loving learning and loving education are not always necessarily the same thing, although they do align a great deal of the time. Right. So, so basically, the idea is that a student who is not necessarily going to be applying to prestigious colleges or schools that require um, portfolios or auditions, like 
the uh, highly motivated students who are not necessarily testing oriented, but are uh, motivated in their own way academically, even if that academics is the arts. They're probably going to get this process started at the end of their junior year. They're going to take that late spring SAT or ACT. They're going to go back to school in the fall, maybe take another one. Their college counselor and parents are going to kick them in the butt and get them started on that application process. They'll get that in and then the application deadlines tend to fall between December 1st and February 1st depending on the school you're applying to. And that's a fairly normal calendar for most students. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's historically been the, the application and college test, and probably in, uh, yeah, college testing calendar. Uh, but then you talk about students who, and we're going to look at both of those situations. The students who are going to do a lot of testing and the students who are not necessarily going to look up, do a lot of testing. So your, your highly motivated academic students who are applying to prestigious colleges, you've already talked in a previous podcast episode about your younger son who already in ninth grade is starting to think about college searches. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about, for this student, what I would recommend if you came to me as a tutor, someone who's done some college counseling, he came to me and asked, okay, what are we supposed to do? He's a freshman, he's already interested in this. And I'd say that that's a good thing, especially if a student is highly motivated to get into a prestigious university, to apply to highly competitive colleges. One of the things we talk about in Endeavor a lot is this phrase that 95% of the students who get accepted to a school like Harvard are academically um, you know, they're, 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 they've achieved all the academic goals that that school expects. They've had qualified for yeah, all the... They're, they're, they're academically qualified. You're absolutely right. They, they've achieved all the, the numbers. They've taken the certain number of AP tests. And so that that point, what's going to differentiate those students for colleges, whether it's Harvard and its peers in the Ivy League or very, very prestigious schools that are not in the Ivy League, is what story they're telling. And part of that story can be the way you set up your classes. And I've had a conversation with Nikhil, for example, in a previous episode on high school course selection. And part of that is about things that you just talked about, which is AP classes. Beyond the SAT and the ACT, other tests exist that students may want to take as part of their high school experience and their college application process, even as early as possible. And starting to plan that out as a freshman is very important. Not, and again, I don't want to turn parents into helicopter parents or drive people to distraction with, oh my God, I need to be anxious about this. What I really want to do is just actually take the anxiety out of it by planning as early as possible. Well, that makes sense. It's like uh, my younger son is interested basically because he just started to receive mail mm -hmm. from the colleges. And it is not something we toil over. We don't have spreadsheets or big boards on the wall that. Um, mm -hmm. He hasn't opened an Aviance account or anything like that. It's just when mail comes in, he's interested. He opens it up. He talks about what their specializations are. Right. He talks about what their tuition. He's very tuition conscious, which thank you, I love that. <laughs> um, he is uh, conscious about how far from home and what the climate is, and mm -hmm. and and any special programs that they offer. Absolutely, and that make that's great. I know a lot of freshmen who are not interested in that when that happens, but mom and dad are. Mm -hmm. And so whether the student is already self-motivated or the parents are guiding the student, whether uh, gently or more forcefully, starting early is not a bad thing. And, and, and I want to say to any parents out there who 
want to get this process started with their high school freshmen, but the student is not motivated to be involved in this, even though they're already an honor student and they're looking at AP classes and they're gonna be a student who's gonna really care junior year and senior year, start this on your own. Start preparing this material and helping your student choose classes that will help them achieve their goals, even if they're not interested in being a part of the conversation yet. So that means that if your student can handle them, they, that student should take honors classes. That student should take the most um, challenging classes that the student can handle. But on the other hand, taking all honors classes just for the sake of taking honors classes isn't a good thing. So let me ask just if you don't mind for a clarification Please. because I've been hearing a lot about this. So um, I hear often during the, the seminars and articles that I read um, from the college counselor point of view um, that college admissions uh, officers are make they know your school mm -hmm. and they want to make sure that you have if especially if you're applying to a, a very high-end competitive school they mm -hmm. want to make sure that you have availed yourself of all of the challenges that your school offers right so they're not going to hold it against you if you took no APs if your school didn't offer any. right but if they offer them and you want to go to a really high-end school mm -hmm. you should have taken advantage of them on the other hand, if you have a student, you know, average student who, um, of which I was one in high school, I didn't really figure out my academic interest until college. But when I was in high school, I, could, I took an honors course, one I knew I could do well in, and I didn't take the others. Mm -hmm. uh, because I knew that if I took the others, the chances of my grade average going down mm -hmm. was was right. you know higher. It was it was a risk. Yeah. So for the average kid, does it make sense to take ones if you know you can do well, you're interested, and you, you're you're motivated to do well, but um, only if you are going for those really highly competitive schools should you take all of them. So there's a lot of answers because that, that was a very deep question. And it was long. Sorry. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's very deep. So there's a lot of ways to look at this. First off, if you're talking about average student, so a student who's a B student. And they want to apply to good schools, but they're not necessarily looking at Ivy League schools. But you still want to maximize your, your, your college chances. You want to be able to apply to schools and get accepted to more than one of them so you have choices. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, you're right. Uh, basically, when you're deciding between honors and AP, you really want to focus on the areas where you're going to do well. I mean, obviously, you want to improve and learn in all areas. But part of what we've talked about, and whether it's my conversations with you or my conversations with Wanda or my conversations with Nikhil, have been about students telling their story. That it's more than just the numbers. You know, that whole 95% academically qualified statistic that I just threw out, that we've thrown out in all these episodes, is true. So it's more than just numbers. It's gotta be about the person. So for example, you know, when I was in high school, AP classes were available in physics, chemistry, bio, calculus, and I took none of them because I would have crashed and burned. Those are not my areas of expertise. I took APs in US history, world history, English, and music theory because I knew I could really do well in those classes, and I took all of them my junior and senior year because in my high school, students were only allowed to take AP classes in junior and senior year. Sophomores and freshmen were not allowed. I have worked with students since I've moved to Massachusetts whose schools allow freshmen and sophomores to take AP classes. Really? Yeah. Wow. So there are students who've taken AP as early as 
sophomore year, even a tiny handful have taken an AP their freshman year. So you don't have to cram them all in at the end. Right. And they can spread them out and take just a few each year and get the maximum uh, result. Now, on the other hand, think of it this way. Even my high school, which did not offer the full uh, breadth of AP, I think there's 30 AP subjects, 30. The average high school student probably takes six or seven classes at a time. So you've got your English class, your history class, your math class, your science class, and a language, mm -hmm. plus some electives. Maybe that's gym and maybe that's an academic elective. And I'm not saying there's something wrong with gym, I'm just saying you can't take AP gym currently. So that means you can't take 13 APs in a year. The most you could take is seven probably, and why would you do that? That's, mm. It doesn't improve your chances of getting into college. It'll drive you crazy. It'll drive you crazy, you're absolutely right. Didn't you write an article about the stress of junior year? Absolutely, and I can probably link that in the show notes. But you know, overloading on AP classes, whether it's junior year or senior year, is not a recipe for success. You wanna be strategic about it and take the classes that you feel are gonna give you the best chance to, to learn the most and excel. You wanna learn, but you also wanna get good results. Mm -hmm. And that way you can tell your story. So I took APs in history, English, and music, the arts, because that was my story. There are students who I've worked with who take AP, you know, chemistry and AP calc and AP stats and that's their story is that they're a math science person. They're not going to go anywhere near AP English because that's their weakness. And so you want to maybe take an honors class if you can pull it off but maybe yeah like my last science class was actually a CP or college prep class which is you know the lowest college bound level class mm -hmm. because I knew that science was my thing and I wanted to get an A in at least one science class. Want to get an A in a science class, and I pulled it off my junior year. Got an A in that science class, but that, then I was done because my school district, my state, New Jersey. At the, uh, I, I grew up in New Jersey. In New Jersey at the time, I only had to take three years of science. I only had to take three years of math, and I did, and I got away with it. So, planning that out is as much a part of the testing calendar as is SAT, ACT. And you have to take, if you're taking APs, you have to take the AP exam the same year. Well, right? that's, you don't have to take the exam. Approximately 35 to 40% of students take the class and then don't sign up for the exam. So they don't get the full credit for the AP class. Is that because they don't feel like the test, that they would do well on the test? Exactly. Okay. They bail on the test. A lot of How students... How do to colleges? Do, do it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. I mean, it doesn't look terrible. You, if you take this class and you get an A in the class... To the colleges, the admissions officers, I would assume, and again, this is one thing where I actually haven't had a conversation with an admissions officer about this, but from the reading I've done, the research I've done, it looks like that taking an AP class but not taking the exam is probably the equivalent of taking an honors level class. So you might as well have taken the honors level class. The, the thing is, if you take the AP, you should take the exam, and they're gonna come up in May. And that's part of your calendar. Know that you're gonna have that AP testing in May. If you're gonna take the class, you should, and you're going to excel in the class, take the exam. If you don't take it um, at that time, can you take it a year later and catch Not that up, I know of. Or? Not that I know okay. of. None of the reading I've done on this subject, I've done a lot of research on this for several articles I've written on APs and how they apply to, to the college application process, and I have not seen students be able to make them up. I mean, I okay. think you can for, like, if let's say you were sick, yeah. I know that over the summer I've heard of students doing that, but that's a special circumstance. That's like, oh, my student came down with mono. But if you didn't feel like taking a junior year because you didn't feel like you were prepared, you can't then take it the next May. Unless you retake the class. Okay. 
That's good to know. Yeah. So uh, again, right now, only about 65% of students who complete an AP class take the exam. And the exam is the part that is part of this testing calendar that we're talking about. And it's where you want to achieve a score that's going to help you both demonstrate what you know and help you with your college application process. And if you get a four or a five, depending on the school, it can help you with placement in college. So that's an important factor. And if your student is someone who can probably handle AP classes, you need to start thinking about it freshman year, even if you can't take or don't want to take, or your student doesn't want to take, if you're a parent, AP classes freshman year. And again, like a lot student. of schools will not be able to take AP classes freshman year. It's a limited number of high schools that, that let students do that. Like my son who needs to take the honors yes. level sophomore year if he wants to take AP junior year. Exactly. You want to plan ahead for that. Uh, you really want to plan that in advance. For example, the reason why I was able to take AP music theory my senior year was because I took AP 1 as a freshman, uh, pardon me, music theory 1 as a freshman, music theory 2 as a sophomore, and music theory 3 as a senior. So music theory 4 was the AP class. Now unlike, for example, English where all you have to do is just take honors English, generally speaking, throughout high school and you can roll into the AP class, I had to plan that out. I had to make a choice and I had to choose between taking theater class or music class. I wasn't able, that must have been hard. it was very stressful. But I figured I was already doing theater, and I was involved in the school play, mm -hmm. and I just didn't feel I was, gonna, I was getting enough music instruction outside of that. I mean, even though I was in chorus, that was, you know, chorus just wasn't, we weren't learning theory, we weren't learning music history. Right. So I really felt like I'd have the chance to study theater history in college, because that's where I was going. Uh, in, in that area, so I wanted to take my music theory in high school. So I really planned it out starting my freshman year. And that meant a lot to, to me to be able to get that AP class and take that AP test at the end of the year. So beyond APs, if you're applying to very prestigious schools and, and you're uh, gonna be doing testing, you're gonna probably take one or two subject tests. And you wanna plan those out as well. Like for example, maybe as a freshman, your school system, your state, your school district makes you take biology. And you're a good student, so you're gonna take honors biology, right? Now, most students wait till their junior or senior year to take SAT subject tests. But bio is not a great test to take two years after you finish class. Maybe you take a subject test at the end of your freshman year. So SAT subject tests are something that you don't have a prerequisite for, you don't have to get a school class waiver or something to do. You can just go onto the College Board website and sign up for it at any time. Exactly. That's all you have to do. It's like the SAT. You can take it at any of the testing dates that are available. Now keep in mind, there are seven testing dates for the SAT per year. One of them, the March test date, I've talked about it a lot over the last several podcast episodes, is the one where most students in their junior year take the SAT for the first time. Since it's the most popular SAT date, it's the only one where the SAT people do not allow students to take subject tests. So the other six, you can take subject tests. You can take subject tests over the summer in the, on the August test date, October, November, December, May, June, the other six test dates. But if you're gonna take one in like biology, physics, chemistry, US history, or world history, they're more aligned to a particular class. And so I would recommend, even if you're a freshman or sophomore, and you're an honor student, because the subject test is basically honors level, it's not quite as challenging a test as the AP, 
You should plan in May or June of that school year to take the subject test in that subject if it's your interest. For example, because I did um, AP, I'm trying to remember because this was a million years ago, I think I did AP US my junior year and AP World my senior year. So I took the subject test in US history at the end of my junior year. When it was all fresh in your mind. Right, right. And then in the fall, I took the subject tests in World, even though I had just started the class, but I'd, I, I was prepared for it. And I took the writing one, which no longer exists. It's been rolled into the SAT because mm -hmm. of the essay. So I kind of spread out my subject test based on when I think they would line up with classes. And that was a successful strategy for me. I scored uh, well enough to make my subject test a, a, a positive for my application. This is really good to know because my younger son is in honors biology right now. Mm -hmm. And he's a freshman. Mm -hmm. And so it would make sense to give it a shot this year Absolutely. while it's fresh in his mind. Now my question though is... Is it required reporting or can you self-report? It is not. You, you don't have to uh, report the scores. I mean, you can leave that blank. And when you end up applying to schools as a, as a senior, a student can, if, especially if a student is applying to schools that request require subject tests and you've ended up taking three but they only want to see two, you only have to report the two higher scores. Okay. That's why I say spread them out over the year. So if you know your son wants to take the biology one this May or June, and depending on your your school's calendar when they have finals, the June test will probably be better if they have finals in the second week of June because they're prepared. They're, they're studying for finals for an honors level class. They are, at the same time, studying for the subject test. Mm -hmm. Instead of being an open response test like your final, it's a multiple choice test. But it's and the same material. And it's uh, sort of no risk if you don't have to report it. Yeah. You can do it, you can practice, and it'll either be a data point that you can share because it's, it's a good mm -hmm. score or not. Now, the SAT subject tests, what is the scale? The scale is... It's a little off topic, but this is something I've never It's a great had. question. The scale is the same as the SAT sections, 200 to 800. Okay. 200 is the lowest score, 800 is the highest score. The median for each subject test is different. And interestingly enough, and I've talked about this in other episodes when I was working with Neil and we were talking about hacking your own SAT, which those episodes will premiere later this spring. Um, 500 is the median score, essentially. Not exactly. It's a little bit off. It, it varies from year to year, but it's approximately 500 for the English and the math, the two sections on the SAT. The medians for the subject tests vary from the high 500s to the low 700s. And the reason for that is it's a self-selecting group, the students who take the SAT subject tests. So if you think about it, about 2 million juniors take the SAT every year, or 2 million students, not all of them are juniors, they want some to of them are seniors. Yeah, whether they want to or not. They take this SAT uh, every year, these students, and that means it's you know, high achieving students down through students who are just taking it because maybe they'll go to college someday, mm -hmm. do everybody in between. The students taking the subject test tend to be students who are applying to extremely competitive, fussy colleges and universities. So they're already thinking about, I'm already an honors AP student, I'm already a 4.0 or higher depending on my school's weighted average student, so they're already the higher performing students. So that's why the median is so much higher. Okay. So, and again, you can find that information on the College Board's website. Yeah, the and, website's really helpful, actually. Yeah, they'll, they'll tell you what that is. 
uh, what those what those uh, median scores are, and they, I know they publish an SAT subject test book that you can buy on Amazon or pick up at Barnes and Noble or any local bookstore or book chain will probably have it or can order it for you, uh, and they'll have that information in there. They'll tell you what the median score is. So, you know, the subject tests are useful for that. Not everybody needs them. Only about thirty to forty colleges require subject tests for general admission. Another 50 to 100 request it or require it for only specific programs. For example, there's an honors program and a pre-med program at UMass Amherst. Now, UMass Amherst, many of you have heard of the school. It's one of the best public universities in the country. And they do not request or even want subject tests unless you're applying for admission to their honors program or their pre-med program. And then they request it. Now, I require it. One of the two, one of the two. But they, but I, all my students have applied to that program. Those, those two different programs have submitted them, and usually they want to submit a math and a science one. But again, the honors one I think is more flexible. Okay, so we talked about AP and how to space it out over the four years as much as you can, taking them close to when you're taking the course. Obviously, they go with the courses, right? Mm-hmm. The subject tests you want to space them out as well and take them right after the courses that are relevant, if right. possible, to keep the content fresh in your mind. Yep. And that most kids take the SAT the March of their junior year. And if you're a student who's really nervous about this, one cool thing you can do is you can take the SAT anytime you want. Even though most students tend to, you can take it anytime. So one thing that students who prep the summer before their junior year, because that's a good time to do it in summer. You're not in you know, school, you have some time, you're no longer a little kid going to camp. So you might prep that summer before your junior year, and you're going to take the PSAT anyway, so you might as well schedule an SAT during that same time because you're prepared. That's what's great about the new August, the new August date oh, yes. for the SAT. I'm thrilled with it. Yeah. Yeah, one thing also about that August date is if you take a subject test, like say your son takes a subject, subject test in biology this June, and maybe he scores okay but not what he liked, rather than say, oh, I'll just throw that score away and I'll do some other ones later, maybe he reviews and preps or gets some tutoring over the summer and he takes again in August when it's still relatively fresh, Mm -hmm. as opposed to waiting till his junior year or senior year. That makes sense. Yeah. So then what do you do for somebody like you were Mm -hmm. as a student? You took it five times. Yeah. You wanted, you, you had a certain target score, which is really important, isn't it? It's important to know what your target score is. Now I don't, and I maybe this is a different uh, a different episode, but whether or not that target score is developed um, from your PSAT or from someplace else, but um, so you can answer that. But I also am interested in knowing if somebody's got a target score and they have to take it three, four, five times, mm-hmm. um, is there any recommendation that we would give? on how to space that out. Yeah, so first off, using a real test like a PSAT is the best uh, starting score because it's official. You can take a practice test, you can buy the College Board book, you can go to a tutoring center and take their you know, handmade practice test, but the, the real thing is the best one. So when I'm working with a student and I want to judge their progress after I've tutored them, I don't go off of any of our practice tests, I go off of a real PSAT that they've taken before the program started and their test after the program. That's how I judge that. So in terms of if you're going to take the SAT multiple times, I'd recommend the, the least amount of space between the tests is every other. So if you took the test in October, don't take the November one, take the December one if you want to take them close together. Mm-hmm. If you took the March one, don't take the May one, take the June one. If you took the May one, don't take June, take August. Is that just to give yourself a break? Well, a break and also to give yourself time to get the results back so you can look at it and see if you need to practice on anything. Remember, the results take three weeks to come back. 
So if you take the May test, you're only getting your results back the end of May. That's not enough time to brush up on anything if you want to for the June test. Don't drive yourself crazy. Give yourself a little bit of space to practice. So before we jump into anything else, and I know you might have some other questions, I want to talk about what we talked about earlier, which is those students who are not necessarily highly motivated academic students. They might be highly motivated, more artistic students uh, or students of, uh, uh, who are interested in other things beyond pure academics. Your calendar might look a little bit different. Rather than worrying about AP tests uh, and subject tests and how many times you take the SAT or ACT, uh, you might consider when to prepare and submit portfolios. The other thing is, like, I, like with me, I took music theory as an AP class. There's studio art. There's music theory. There's other artistic uh, AP classes that you can take that might be more important for you and still give you that AP boost to your application that might help you uh, when there's a lot of students applying to certain art programs or music or film or theater programs that where you've taken an AP and you, you know, you, you, you've shown that not only are you artistically qualified, but you're also you know, an academic student who's going to you know, put in that extra work. You know, challenge yourself. So think about that even if you're not necessarily the math, science, or other type of academic student. So I, I throw that out there. But you do want to plan ahead with um, when you're going to submit your portfolio as a senior and then work your way backwards. And if you're uh, into an art, whether it's music, theater, film, visual arts, uh, anything like that, you know, find out about uh, festivals, competitions, places where you can submit your work and and show achievement in the same way that a pure academic student can do that with honors and AP classes. That's a really good point because it's the it's the data points that are important, and the data points will change based on the the um, topic or your major or your your area of expertise that you're trying to um, show your right. Uh, your it, it's these <laughs> events. Yeah, it's these events. It's these <clears throat> these moments that that show off. If you just spent four years in high school painting in your room and then you apply to college, you might have a lot of interesting art to put in your portfolio, but they don't know anything about you. They don't know anything about your art. They don't know uh, how your art has bounced off the world. So take some of that art and submit to competitions. Mm -hmm. You know, even where I live, there's one of the, uh, the world famous Topsfield Fair. It's the, one of the oldest fairs. Most, the concept of the county fair is basically based on the Topsfield Fair. It's been around since the 1810s. So this, this is a local fair and they have art competitions. All photography, painting, different age groups, different styles of art, uh, different materials, and you know that you can you can you get the the, the blue ribbon, you can, and that's that's prestigious. You know, so your county fair, even if you're in you know North Dakota and you're not anywhere near a famous world class competition, go to the county fair, find some place to submit your art. School competitions, you know, the great thing about living in North Dakota nowadays is that the internet exists and you can submit to festivals in New York, Los Angeles, Boston, etc., Atlanta, and, and spread your art around the world and, and get some feedback. I mean, even if you get no thank you, that's feedback. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the world isn't ready for you. Maybe you're the next Van Gogh who sold one painting his entire life and didn't become world famous until after he died. 
but at least you're, you're submitting and you're participating and you're, and you're getting your art out there. You know, when you're an actor, uh, uh, not only go out for the school play, but go out for the local, you know, summer community theater. Like, get yourself out there. You're a musician, you know, perform at the local coffee shop on the weekends or during the summer. Get your music out there. Record a song and put it up on YouTube. Do stuff that, that is part, of, and make that part of your college preparation calendar, your testing calendar. This is your test. This is your point, way to get grades back. And it's not school grades, it's response from an audience. So I still consider the art student a highly motivated student if they're willing to put in the work. It's all about the, the work you want, to, you want to put in and the challenges you want to give yourself. And as we've seen you know, recently with high school students, they can be extremely motivated and make amazing things happen if they put their mind to it. So I think that was a good conversation. I think we kind of jumped around a little bit. Um, hopefully we always I, do. Yeah. Uh, hopefully my article that I eventually write or Wanda will write for this will be a little bit more uh, structured uh, to kind of sum up what we talked about. Um, you know, Christy, thank you so much for, for, for being on this episode with me. My pleasure as always. So this was about the uh, testing calendar for high school students. I'm Jason Breitkopf, the host. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, if, if you've watched the YouTube video, please remember to uh, subscribe and you can subscribe to the audio podcast in your favorite app or through iTunes. Please leave us a comment in our uh, iTunes page or at our Twitter feed at um, at EndeavorPod. And you can ask some questions. I'll be happy to answer them. As always, let's keep learning.